My name's Peter, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, earlier on in the year, um, we, uh, we let the church know that on Mother's and Father's Day, we just wanted to do some parenting messages. And so today is going to be a parenting message. Uh, and some of you, uh, a lot of you actually, aren't parents. And uh, all your, or your kids have uh, grown up and they're no longer at home. And you kind of go, well, what's the relevance of this? And uh, I want to just say to you, there's going to be a heap that's going to be relevant to you. Um, and, and this might sound strange, and some parents need to hear this. Uh, your children are people too, um, and, uh, and they're like you. And uh, that's one of the kind of the core values of this church is, is we don't think of children as a different kind of category to the adults in the church. Uh, they're just mini versions of... They're, they're mini humans. That's really what they are, and they operate by many of the same principles, in fact, by almost all the same principles that that we do. And uh, so what that means is uh, if you're not a parent or your kids have left home, it'll be a bit of a sushi train for you and uh, you'll just be able to grab something as it goes past because it'll be stuff that will be helpful to you. Uh, I want to start here and this is uh, a place that uh, parents love um, to, uh, to think about is this one here, behaviour, behaviour. This is the big one, right? If you're a parent, uh, this is the one that you face all the time, it's the one that everyone sees. It's behaviour is the thing that makes you feel like a success as a parent and also makes you feel like an abject failure as a parent. Uh, it's so closely tied to our perceived success. Behaviour is the... Uh, the, the behaviour of your children is, is what can really uh, embarrass you. Any parents know what I'm talking about? Um, of your children... Uh, the, the behaviour of your children is the thing that you can imagine other parents talking about uh, behind your back um, or whispering about. Uh, behaviour is what gets in the way of your plans and the things that you actually want to do. And, and the bottom line is that behaviour is the pointy end of parenting and it's the thing that we can want to turn and make go in the right direction when it's going wrong, and that's, that's kind of understandable. Um, like I said before, when behaviour is running well, we can feel like a success. When it's running badly, um, it, 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 can feel, it can feel bad, really bad. And, and one of the things that you actually notice about a lot of parenting help is a lot of parenting help is actually about uh, modifying your child's behaviour. Um, and there's, I think, a, a good reason for it, uh, and the good reason for it, I think, is behaviour is very obvious and it's very public. Um, it's everyone can see it. Uh, you can see it, everyone else around you can see it. If it's good, it's obvious. If it's bad, it's equally obvious as well. And who wouldn't want to have children who behave, right? Wouldn't you? Um, so, so one of the things that we often do is we set up rewards and punishments. There's sticker charts and there's lollies. To, uh, or chocolate to get the kind of behaviour that we want. But I want to say to you this morning, here's, here's the bottom line. When all is said and done, if the only thing or the main thing that you've done as a parent is modifying behaviour, you haven't really done the job that God's asked you to do. You haven't done what is required of you as a parent. Because good parenting requires us to look deeper than behaviour. And another way to put it is good parenting actually requires that we look not just to the behaviour, but we look even more so to the motivations that are driving it. Now, behaviour is important. There's no doubt about that. There's times where we need to deal with it directly. And it's going to be unavoidable if you're a parent that you'll need to deal with behaviour in one way or another all of the time. But my point today is not so much that... Um, Behaviour is unimportant. I think behaviour is important. What I want to say to you is what's running underneath behaviour and what's producing the behaviour is much more important. And when it comes to people, when it comes to humanity, when it comes to your kids, when it comes to you, uh, motivations are the engine room behind everything that you actually do. Your children's motivations are the engine room behind what they do. Um, and your motivations behind the actions that you take are, the, are kind of the engine room behind what you do. And now, 
I want to say to you, we don't need to be talking about motivations all of the time with our kids, but I would suggest to you, if you're a parent, and even as a human, you want to be thinking about motivations most of the time. Um, We know that it's possible for a child to be behaviourally compliant yet be in a really dodgy place in terms of their motivations. True? And the reason why we know that is because it's possible for a human to be behaviourally compliant and yet be in a really dodgy place because of their motivations. You know, one adult version of this is religious people. Their behaviour has been modified, but their intentions, their motivations, the things that are driving them are a bit of a mess. And so the questions that you ask to kind of drill down into what someone's motivations are are questions like, why did you do that? Why did you react that way? Um, why, in a word, is, is what, you, what you ask. In my uh, counselling training, one of the things they said to us is they said you should never ask anyone why about a motivational thing. And the reason they gave for that is uh, you can ask why, but there's actually a bunch of times for, him, for people where they get into a place where they actually don't know why. And it can be quite a confronting question to ask someone why when they don't really know the answer. And I think that's fair enough as far as it goes. And I think that's true when it comes to kids. Uh, when it comes to kids, they're not always clear about why they do what they do. Um, and you know how I know that? Because you and I are not always clear about why we do what we do. So while it's good to be thinking about the why question, the motivation question, and you need to be thinking about that most of the time, um, you probably want to be sparing with how often you actually ask the question why of your children. Uh, Feel free to do it. I'm not warning against it. I'm just saying just just be a little bit careful with it and you probably just don't want to rock in on every single behavioural thing and start drilling down into a motivational conversation with them. My big point here is be thinking about motivations because that's the main game in town and you want to make it the main game in town in terms of the way that you're thinking about it um, and take the opportunities when they come up to have good conversations about it. Why are motivations so important? Well motivations tell us about the meaning behind behaviour. It's really important. Okay. Now this is relevant not just to children, this is relevant to every single person in this room. The way that you have behaved in the last week is connected to a deeper level motivation that was actually going on inside of you. They tell you about the meaning behind what you actually did. Now, a really easy way to just kind of paint this picture is by looking at this tree. Now, that's a fruit tree. Can anyone guess what kind of fruit tree that is? A bit louder? That's an apple tree. Why do you think it's an apple tree? Because it's got apples on it. Excellent. You guys are great and very intelligent. That's us, Restoration Church, right? We are just intelligent people. We can just nail things. Because here's the bottom line. You might be able to pick an apple tree if it doesn't have apple, apples on it. You may be a horticultural expert. Um, but you don't have to be a horticultural expert to see that when, an apple, when a tree's got apples on it, it's an apple tree, right? Now... If I took all of the apples off of that tree and went and got a bunch of pears and I glued the pears onto the same spots that all of the apples were, would it be a pear tree? It's not a deep philosophical question, all right? I don't want you to stumble at this point. No, it wouldn't be, right? Why wouldn't it be a pear tree? Because the fruit comes out of the centre of what the tree is. And the centre of what this tree is, is an apple tree. It's, it's trunk, it's, it's kind of, in inverted commas, it's genetics, it's DNA, is like it's, a, it's an apple tree. And so it's going to produce apples, because at the core of it, that's what it is. What it produces on the outside, with the fruit, comes out of what is going on on the inside. And this is true about everyone. This is true about children. Uh, If you look at the apple tree on the screen there, behaviour is like the pieces of fruit on the tree, okay? 
The fruit doesn't drive what's going on. The, the fruit is the evidence of what's going on in the centre of what the tree is. Now, Jesus used this exact metaphor in the Gospel of Matthew. And I just want to read through it with you. He said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You, you know, you just did this, right? You just got, that, that's exactly what you did. You said, that's an apple tree because of the fruit that's on it. And then Jesus, you know, how to win friends and influence people. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? And this is, this is critical. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Now, I italicised and changed the colour of the word in that uh, section of scripture that you, you just need to focus on. I want you to focus on a little bit and it's the word, it's the word heart. Now, notice what Jesus is saying here is what comes out of your mouth, and this is not a message about good speech, but what comes out of your mouth is the fruit of what's in your heart, all right? And then he goes on and he talks about how good people bring good things out of the good stored in their hearts, and then he kind of wraps up the section with this uh, in verse 36 to 37, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken, for by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, this is a very confronting section of scripture and I'm not here to preach about the actual um, uh, application of what Jesus is talking about here Um, but notice what he is saying your words will either acquit you or condemn you and maybe some of you just go see there you go behavior is the central game in town it's all about behavior but I, I would say to you don't don't be fooled by that and your behavior is the evidence of what's going on in your heart Specifically, the words are the evidence of what's going on in your heart. And this is why they acquit or condemn you. That's the evidence that, in a sense, that gets brought into the courtroom to prove what has been going on in your heart. Well, what's your heart? Uh, Well, Scripture refers to the heart many, many times. Basically, uh, the easy way to describe it is that your heart is the non-physical part of who you are. Um, that's what it is. And it's this unseen part of you and I that actually matters the most. Behaviour does matter, but the heart is what matters the most. And, and I want to just say to you, if you're a parent, it's really hard to keep your eyes trained on the hearts of your children. Because the thing that is so obvious, the thing that's in your face so much of the time, is their behaviour. Now, if you've been... In Restoration Church for a while, um, this, you know, some of you probably go, oh, he's got this one on repeat again today because we've talked about this stuff. We have talked about the heart. We've talked about the heart a lot because Scripture talks about the heart and that's usually a good plan. When the Bible talks about something a lot, you should talk about it a lot. Um, we live in a culture that talks about the heart, but the interesting thing about the way that culture thinks about the heart is uh, culture thinks about the heart mostly as an emotive thing. That you need to follow your heart, you need to follow your emotions. And that's helpful a little bit, but it's a bit limited. Um, so I want to just, for those who've been around, you've heard me say this before, but if you've joined us in the last few years, let's just get everyone on the same page. Um, the heart is a non-physical part of, of who you are, and if you actually just did a, a search in Scripture and just did, search for the word heart, the whole way through scripture and read the verses that were connected to it, you would actually find that the heart is comprised of the mind, the will and the emotions. That's what you see. And I'd encourage you to actually go ahead and do that because um, it pops up all over the place. But I'm just going to cut to the chase a little bit this morning and just show you three verses that speak of this very thing. Here it is on the screen. Um, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. Proverbs 18, 15. Do you see what that is? That's the mind, right? That's the thinking. 
will turn my heart toward your statutes and not towards selfish gain. You see what that is? That's the will. It's referring to the will there. Um, it's Psalm 119, verse 36. And the last one there is, is uh, emotions, which is Hosea 11, verse 8. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Now, there is a lot to say about each of these three categories. And I just want to make um, a few comments about them just to get you started. But seriously, I could do a whole, whole series on this, right? Because I think this is really, really helpful to kind of drill down into how all of this works. But one of the ways that people can think about the mind, the will and the, mo the emotions is that they're three distinct parts of the heart. And that one of those is operating at one point in time and then another one's operating at another point in time. Um, does anyone remember this? Yeah? Yeah? What, what, what's this? No, it's not Game of Life. I can say that because she's my sister who just suggested that. What is it? Trivial Pursuit. Uh, Trivial Pursuit was a dumb game <laughs> that asked a whole bunch of questions that most people didn't know the answer. All right, and then... Someone, the team that had the, the nerdiest, intelligent person kind of won. That's kind of how it worked. And what you did is as you went around the board, you uh, answered different uh, questions based on different coloured categories. And if you got the question right, you'd get one of these pieces that want to go in the, uh, the little piece that, that was your, uh, your game piece. Um, this is one way that you could think about uh, the mind, the will and the emotions, that they're separate compartmentalised pieces, distinct parts where one operates and the other's actually don't but I don't think that's the case uh, I think that the mind the will and the emotions are actually three parts to the heart that are always in action and always pushing and pulling on one another there might be a time where one of them is more prominent and then another time where uh, it's less so and one of the others is more prominent and I actually think that this is what you see in scripture too is that they're all kind of in play uh, all of the time I want to give you an example of uh, a time and a place uh, with children where the mind, the will and the emotions um, can all be in play together and it's, it's this one. Right? Who's, who gives an amen to that? It's like, yeah, I've been there. Um, who's thinking mostly about how the floor's dirty at this point? Yeah, a few people. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, some of you have lived this. This is a shopping tantrum, right? And you better believe that a shopping tantrum or any kind of tantrum, the mind, the will, and the emotions are all wrapped up and running at the same time. Now, if I had to ask you which one was most prominent at that point, the mind, the will, and the emotions, which one do you think it is? It could be the emotions, yeah? I'd, you could argue that. What would be another one? What, what would some other people argue? The will, right? Maybe at the end. I mean, the emotions really fire up along the way, but then at the end, will big time becomes a, the, um, the part of the heart that's going. Uh, but it doesn't take too much to think um, about uh, this kind of situation to, um, to go, yeah, I'm pretty sure the mind would be uh, working in there as well. Uh, they're kind of all in play. Um, now, this is a classic example. If you go to that child in the middle of a tantrum and want to have a conversation about motivations, how do you think that's going to go? <laughs> it's, it's not going to go well, right? And if you try it, because you go, oh, Peter said this on Sunday morning, right? And you're in Bunnings on Tuesday afternoon after work and your kid loses their nana, right? And you go, I'm going to have a chat about motivations. Like, I didn't say to do that then, right? I didn't say to do that then. Um, What's, what, what's going on when a child's having a tantrum? Well, there's behaviour going on and it's in your face. It's in everyone else's face too, isn't it? Um, but this is just one of those examples where as a parent we want to be dealing with the behaviour that's in front of us but looking through it to the motivation in the heart that's going on underneath it. Because according to Jesus, that's the most important part, right? Um, what do you think has actually happened with this child's heart to bring about this shopping centre tantrum? I wonder what you'd say. 
one of the best ways I can think of to describe it is they had a desire and it hijacked them. That's what happened. They had a desire and it hijacked them and it actually took over their mind, their will and their emotions and they became a slave to their desire. All right? Um, theologians use the word inordinate desires and to describe the way that desires can get too big. It's not that the desire in itself is necessarily wrong, although there are some evil desires. It's more that a desire got too big and it became inordinate. And when it became inordinate, it became really troublesome. We, we do not agree with the Buddhists that you have to suppress desire and that's how you get to nirvana. We think desires are okay, by and large. There's evil desires, which are not. But there's a lot of desires that are okay. But the problem becomes not when those desires exist, but when those desires get too big. Uh, this, um, this child thinks they need something. Their will has to get it. And they have this rush of feelings that's going on in the middle of it. And so it's just an example of um, a parenting situation. Just to highlight with you again, we need to be looking through the behaviour to see the heart motivation that sits in underneath it. This is the point of the first half of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, when you think about parenting, you need to be thinking mostly about what you can't see, not what you can see. Okay? And I know this is not new, but uh, I was talking with Angie about this yesterday. You just, you just seem to be reminded of stuff as a parent. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You seem to go, oh, that's right, that's what we're doing. Because for the last week, I've just been looking at what I could see. I need to be thinking about what I can't see. Um, a few caveats, and then I'm going to bring some specific application of this to uh, a couple of different scenarios. Uh, every, every parent has moments... Uh, gritty moments where you just want a silver bullet, right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like, give me the trick that's going to work to make all of this go away. And you know, there might be one of those about 1% of the time. But 99% of the time, parenting is a long game, right? Where you've just got to be doing things over the long term. Sure, there's some strategies and techniques you could use to diffuse a situation, to help take a situation in the direction that's going to be really helpful. But when we're thinking about parenting, we're thinking about a time length of years, not just a 10-second moment where some behaviours popped up and we just want to kind of neutralise it. We'll put it in the words of Jesus and you, you would say something like, we want to be thinking about how we can shape the hearts of our children, uh, the mind, the will and the emotions, the bits that you can't see. So I want to finish today just by giving some practical application to a couple of areas um, that you'll encounter um, with your children if you're a parent and also these are areas that all of us encounter. Um, there's this great comment that Biblical counsellor David Powlison made and I uh, just want to put it on the screen for you. He estimates that if we could understand anxiety, sorry, anger, anxiety and escape, it would account for some 95% of life's struggles. I think he's right. And um, this, this is really powerful, not just for those who have got kids, this is really powerful for all of us. And I, I would, one of the things I would ask you is, do you, have, are you, do you have a biblical understanding of anger, anxiety and escape? Do you have an understanding of the way that it works inside of you? Do you know how to connect Jesus into that? I want to take a look at the first two today, anger and anxiety, uh, when it comes to being parents. But uh, as we go, I'm sure that you'll see a bunch of um, things that will be helpful for you personally. And, and I want to just make a couple of kind of disclaimers. And the first one's this. Uh, I'm just giving general statements about things. And uh, it may be different for your kid. Uh, I get like, I'll get probably five to ten minutes on each one of these two. And so I'm not going to be able to say everything. So if you, if you think about some things that could be said or some things that are helpful, you, you're probably right. They probably are helpful. My goal here is just to help you to understand uh, these things in a way that you can look through the behaviour to see the heart. So let's start with anger. Um, here's, here's the first one. 
Um, anger, anger is obvious, all right? Uh, anger is a very noisy problem. Uh, it's in your face. Um, there's a sense in which you need to look for most problems in your kids, but you don't have to look for anger because it usually finds you, right? That's kind of how it works. And, and, and I want you to see just at this point as we're thinking about anger, um, that there's a silver lining to it, right? Because it's really, really obvious what's going on. And you don't have to work it out. You don't have to ask the why questions. Usually it's, it's pretty it's pretty clear what's happening in the heart of your child. One of the things, and perhaps the biggest thing that anger says, is something is wrong. Something is wrong. Um, Here's here's the second thing. Uh, Anger is blinding. This is good to know. So, again, we're still talking about the unseen part, the unseen um, heart of your child. Um, But they become very very much unaware of what's going on around them. Uh, once anger has control of your child, they actually become the least aware person in the room. All right? I, I have a way of communicating this to my sons, right? And I don't do it in the middle of them being angry, okay? But I do talk to them about this outside of times where they're angry. Uh, and you may not think this is appropriate for your children, and that's fine, all right? But it gets the message through to my boys really clearly. I say to them, the angry person is the dumbest person in the room, right? Because they actually are. And that's, that's the case with everyone. And, and this is one of the wicked kind of ironies of anger is, is the angry person thinks they're the smartest person in the room, right? They think that they're across everything. They actually think they're the only ones that see the situation truly and clearly, but they're actually the dumbest person in the room because there's all these things that are going on in the room which they're just not connected with, that they're not actually tuned into. It's, it's so ironic. And when, when you see it in your children, what's going on is the thing that they want has actually hijacked their mind, their will, and their emotions. And it's driving them, right? And, and they've, they just have no awareness of other stuff that's going on in the room. They're only tuned in to the thing that they want or the thing that they think is wrong. And this is, this is one, of the, one of the places where you've just got to have switched on. I'm looking to the things that are unseen, even as I have to deal with the behaviour and the things that are seen, right? Um, you can't have a conversation with an angry kid about why they're angry, Right? You can't have a conversation with an angry adult about why they're angry. It just doesn't work. I mean, the amount of self-control that it takes to actually dial things back for an adult who's angry is massive. Some people can do it, but most can't. Anger happens because some kind of desire has hijacked your child and it's driving them. Um, They want what they want. The behaviour is a problem and you need to deal with the behaviour that's in front of you and you need to stop harmful things happening because, man, kids throw stuff, right, when they get angry and it can actually be really dangerous and, and you do need to engage with the behaviour but you just need to know that they're being ruled by a desire is actually the bigger issue that's in play there. It's just that you can't actually talk about it right then and there. And you can see how uh, with anger... Um, you can actually get, at the right time, you can get really specific with what repentance looks like at that point, right? Because you can talk about the desire that ruled them and help them to apologise and ask for forgiveness from the Lord and from uh, their brothers and sisters or their mum and dad, and, and it's, it's really, really clear. Here's a uh, final thought about anger, and this is not just about the unseen in your children, this is about the unseen in you as well. Anger is contagious. Um, you just got to be on your guard for this, that people get angry at angry people. That's kind of how it rolls. And, and the logic behind it is actually quite straightforward. Like, when you have someone who's using their power to grasp after something and to get what they want, all of a sudden what happens is there's other people in there that are missing out what, on what they want, and so then they get angry at the person who's getting angry about not getting what they want, and then everyone's getting angry about not getting what they want. You, you see what I'm saying? 
Um, that's kind of where it ends up. And this is why scripture is really clear about the, flat, the fact that you, uh, you need to be slow to get angry. Proverbs 15 verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I would just encourage you, and I think this is hard, but when, when your children are losing their minds, like almost literally, don't lose yours. Don't lose your mind. It's like the last thing. Now, have I done this? Heaps of times, right? So I'm not standing up here as an expert. I'm standing up here as a fellow struggler who knows that this is true and is working in this direction, right? How many times have you been in a situation where your kid's just getting really, really angry and then you start getting really, really angry and all of a sudden everyone's angry and no one's having a good time? Have you, have you noticed that? No one's putting their hand up and going, this is like awesome. I... I am so thankful that the Lord uh, brought me into this family right now, right? Because everyone's just angry and going at each other. You need to stay calm. Because um, here's the thing. And this is the scary thing from a parent point of view, is that if you join your child in the very behaviour that you don't want them to be doing, you're modelling that that's how you handle a situation that gets out of control. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, we want to handle power differently to the way the angry child or the angry person handles it. Because the temptation inside of us is like, I'm, I'm going to overpower the disrespect and the dishonour that's happening here with my power and just shut you down. I'm not saying that parents don't need to be strong in those moments, but do you see the difference? When you grasp after it and just go, I'm going to shut this person down with my anger and my power, that's a problem. You see, your kid's trying to overpower the situation to get what they want, and then a parent, if a parent comes in to overpower the situation to get what they want, that's really problematic. So here's, here's what we want to do. This is, this is an all-play. And uh, it's an all play if you're in situations with angry people. When people around us are overreacting, we want to be underreacting. That's, that's what we want to be doing. When people around us are overreacting, we want to be underreacting. And, and in the context of parenting, when you underreact when your child is overreacting, you know what you're saying to your child? Here's what's honourable. Maintaining self-control in the midst of not getting what you want. You see that? that that's what you're saying to your child. And, and it's kind of, if you've been around at church over the last month, we've been talking about power and strength. Um, this is a radical redefinition um, of power and control. Do you need to have conversations with your children about their anger? 100% you do, Right? but only after their emotions, their will, and their mind have kind of settled a bit. We want to work hard in between angry episodes talking with our kids. Of course they need to be sanctioned for things that they've done, but sanctioning kids in the middle of them being hijacked by what they want and by an inordinate desire is not going to be helpful for them. Uh, one of the things that was said to me early in my teaching career um, by a, uh, a leading kind of teacher. It might have been the assistant principal at the school I was at at the time, years ago. He said to me, he said, um, you don't react when a pig squeals like a pig, right? But he said, if there's a, um, an animal that's not a pig that squeals like a pig, you need to pay attention to it. What he was saying is that when you've handed out a fair and just punishment to a child, they usually don't react to you and fight against it. They usually know that it's fair. His point was if you hand out something that's unjust, then they'll squeal. Um, and I think that was really helpful. Here's, here's a scripture that just summarises what we're wanting to do with angry kids. Uh, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. All right? need to be attuned to what we can't actually see. The second one I want to look at this morning, it was anger, anxiety and escape, is anxiety. 
Uh, and we, we have said a lot about this over the years at the church. You can go to our website and just do a word search in our sermon player for um, anxiety and you'll find a bunch of messages on that. Uh, let me just give you a quick summary about where we come from with anxiety. Anxiety is worry, it's nervousness, it's unease, which is normally connected to the possibility of something bad happening. We don't think all anxiety is bad. Paul talks about the anxiety that he had for all of the, the churches. And we know uh, uh, by research that a certain level of anxiety actually assists performance. And uh, I think what that's actually connected to is the way that God made humanity in the very beginning, that he made us to guard and protect the garden. And so there's something inside of us that gets us as a whole person, body included, ready to go when there's some kind of threat or um, danger around the place. And and this, I think, captures uh, the idea behind anxiety is that it's an all-of-body experience. Um, And the problem that we actually see uh, in Scripture is that humanity has been given dominion and power to to exercise it over disorder, to bring about order and goodness. But what happens with humanity is we step out from underneath God's dominion and we actually have all this disorder around the place. It's even worse now because sin's in the world and, and no overarching um, kind of umbrella of God's um, dominion to actually rest in. Uh, and so all of a sudden there's way, way, way more for us to control. What makes it tricky uh, when it comes to anxiety is that the world's fallen and bad things actually happen. And there's actually many valid fears. And one of the things that I think um, the pandemic has done Everyone's kind of recovered from the stresses and the, the fear that was kicking around in the pandemic. But it seems to me, um, I was having this conversation with Ed Welsh a little while ago, and, and, and this is one of the things he said, and, and I agreed with him. I said, yeah, I think that's true. He said, there's a new baseline for anxiety now. Um, it's not so much that we're kind of at the peak that we were, but it's kind of like if it was like a soft drink bottle uh, that gets shaken, the level of soft drink in the bottles higher and so it doesn't seem to take as much on top to really uh, make anxiety get going Um, there's an assortment of fears we live in a fallen world we do make mistakes we're not perfect we do fail people do hurt us danger crime and trauma are real bad things happen People reject us. This is true. This is true. And and what it actually says to you is that there's some kind of logic to anxiety. Um, There's a side of it that kind of makes sense and there's a side which doesn't. Um, The bit that makes sense for us is that there are dangerous things out there which we need to be uh, prepared for. The bit that where it starts to go haywire, as I said before, is when we're operating outside of under God's dominion because then all of a sudden there's so much to do. There's so much that needs to be controlled. So what can you do to help kids? How can you work on their hearts when it comes to anxiety? Well, I'm just going to give you a few thoughts and uh, I just encourage you just to uh, resist the reflex response of that won't work as though one of them is going to be a silver bullet. I'm not really giving you tips in the moment. I mean, there are some tips out there, but notoriously, tips in the moment uh, appear very, very weak, okay? Um, Because fears and anxieties can get very, very big, and a little tip like the way that you're breathing, you just kind of go, oh, like, okay, that's all you're telling me, to actually learn how to breathe better. And it's like, well, breathing is actually going to help you sometimes, right? And so I'm I'm not actually... I'm not giving you tips as much as here's how to think about the way that you're, um, the opportunity that you've got to shape the unseen in your children. Here's a first one. Uh, teach your kids that there is a loving God who is bigger than the worst thing that could happen to them. Now, some of you go, how long for? I don't know. 60 years? That would be a good thing to keep saying, wouldn't it? To your kids. I was reading and meditating on uh, um, 
Revelation chapter 1 the other day. Uh, uh, John, Apostle John has this. He's in the, in the spirit on the Lord's day and um, Jesus starts talking uh, to him. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just read this. So you, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This is fearsome, right? Um, I've been reading Ezekiel at the same time, and, and Ezekiel has similar kind of visions of, of God. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is a fearsome image, isn't it? And I don't mean afraid of getting hurt necessarily. It's just that this is, a, this is an awesome image that John's seeing, this person of Jesus. Listen to the way that John responds. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's like on the ground when you see Jesus for who he truly is. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, now before, before I tell you what he said, the first thing he says is really important, right? If you were there and you were John and you were looking at Jesus, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. And he had a sword coming out of his mouth. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its radiance. The very first thing that this person says is like really, really important. Isn't it? This is what I was thinking as I was reading it and praying about it. I just thought, what, what would I want to hear come out of his mouth the very first thing? What would you expect to come out of his mouth. Well, this is what he says, four words. Do not be afraid. That is startling. Isn't it? Now, if I'm John and I'm on the ground as though I'm dead, I'm not expecting him to say that. The fear of God displaces fear. Right? It doesn't mean that there aren't things that are scary. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that fill you with anxiety. But what it does is if your fear of God is correct and you see God clearly and truly, it makes your fears the right size. It makes them the right size. Anxiety tends to make our problems and our fears really, really big and God's small. But if you get a picture of God as the great one, what it actually does is it shrinks everything down to the right size. See, what are we doing here when we're teaching our kids over and over and over again that there's a big, loving God that's bigger than the worst thing that could ever happen to them? We're informing the way they need to think about their problems. You see, they'll be teaching that over and over and over. And if your kid, if your child, if their fears are really, really big, and they're dominating them, maybe one of the things you need to be talking to them about is the bigness of God. And you just keep going until they can see him clearly. Maybe you need to read Revelation 1 together. Maybe. Maybe that might help. Here's another thing that you can do to help your kids with their, uh, their unseen hearts. Uh, probably only works if your kids are younger. Is allowed... Allow children to pick something which will remind them of God's presence with them. I remember when uh, one of my kids was really young. I can't, I can't remember what the issue was, but he was worried about a bunch of stuff. And uh, I'd heard this tip from a, um, a biblical counselor, and I thought, I'm going to do that uh, with, my, with my son. And so I took him into our rumpus room. Because I've been talking to him about how God's with you all the time. Wherever you go, you can't get away from God. He's going to be with you. He loves you. You can trust in him. And so I said to, uh, 
My son, I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, you can pick anything in the toy cupboard. Just pick something that reminds you of God that's big enough to fit inside your pencil case, all right? And he picked something. He picked a lion, all right? Just like, good choice, all right? A bit of Aslan, just packing your pencil case of Aslan. Nothing wrong with that. So he, uh, he, he took the lion. He put it in his pencil case. And I said, when you get something out and you see the lion, it's a reminder that God's with you. You need to remember that. And... Um, that was kind of the last we talked about it. And then uh, a little way down the track, I noticed the lion wasn't in his pencil case anymore. So I had a conversation with him. I said, what, what happened? He goes, oh, I don't need the lion anymore to remember that God's with me. That's one thing you can do with young kids. Um, find ways, and it's probably helpful for all of us, find ways to be reminded that God's with you. What would it look like for adults? It might look like some Bible app that shoots you a a verse four times a day. That's kind of like having a line in your pencil case, isn't it? Um, Reminding of who God is and and that he's with you. There's another thought about kids and anxiety. Teach your kids that they're part of a bigger story. Um, you need to make it really clear to your kids that they're, they're a bit player, not the key player in the story that's going on around them. Um, I don't know whether you notice this, but when your child has become the hero, there's a lot of pressure on them at that point. Um, you know, if, if you can help your kids to understand that there's a bigger plot line and they're a, a small player in it, that can help kids with performance anxiety because it actually says to them, look, it's actually not about you, this whole story. I don't know whether you noticed the latest ad campaign uh, that TAFE is running at the moment. And uh, I can kind of see what they're up to. Have you seen this one? You define your greatness. I I can see what they're doing, right? Where you just go, they're kind of going, just get after it. Get after some stuff. Get some training and become the person that you want to be. There's a lot of pressure in that, isn't there? I think there's a heap of pressure in that. Um, it all depends on you. If you're really bad at stuff or you're really slack, you're going to be in strife, right? What's the world that you're in? Well, the world that you're in, you're not the hero. I'm not the hero. None of us here are the hero. Jesus is the hero. God's not holding auditions for the hero's spot like it's already finalised and sorted out. Um, and here's something else about the story that all of us are in the story that we're all in is a story where for those who love God every single thing that ever happens to you or has happened to you will all be turned to good that's the story that we're actually in everything Can you see how that kind of thing can inform the way that you talk to your children about the things that they fear and the anxieties that they have? The anxieties about failure. I could get up this morning and give a really bad talk. Some of you go, I'm pretty sure you've done that. Maybe. I could, right? And do you know what the guarantee is with my nervousness before I get up and speak, which I feel every time before I speak? Um... Here's, here's something you could say to me. Pete, just get up and have a go. Do the best that you can because even the worst things are going to be turned to good and everything else is easy for God. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That, that's something that we want to be saying to our kids, isn't it? Look, it's not about you. You get in, you have a go. And if it fails... God's going to see to it that doesn't, it's not all bad in the end. It's actually going to be turned to good. This one takes a little more um, insight, perhaps, or uh, wisdom. Um, teach them to fight the lies anxiety teaches them. Now, there are lies built into every unhealthy expression of anxiety. Okay? 
And um, often, it's if, if you're the one who's anxious, it's really hard to see them, really hard to see the lies in there. But if you're outside of the thing that someone's worried about, it's, it's actually much easier. So one of the things I think that you can do is you can teach them to fight the lies anxiety teaches them how to spot them, how to neutralise them. This will be another way that you'll be able to educate their unseen part. Let me uh, give you um, some lies that anxiety says. You ready? Here's the first one. The world needs to be under your control. That's a lie. doesn't. And in fact, it's not. Even at your best, it's not. The world needs to be under your control. Here's another lie. The world is out of control. All right. Now, there may be pockets that look like that, but I, I assure you the world is not out of control. Here's a third lie that anxiety says. My worry will get it under control. Okay? It's not true. It's just not true. You can worry about something all day long and it's not going to help the situation most of the time. I mean, that's why Jesus said not to be anxious, right? Because you can't even add on an extra minute, pretty much, to your length of life. Like, you can't, you don't have control over that stuff. Ed Welsh said, uh, I think really helpfully, fear is a false prophet. Prophesies impending doom um, when it isn't necessarily the case. Here's two more and then we'll finish. Encourage your kids to face their fears. Um, this is really important with your kids there's some fears and anxieties that are just going to overwhelm them but by and large what you want to be doing I think about 99% of the time is helping your kids walk through things rather than getting them out of them alright because it just becomes this vicious cycle and one of the best ways I think for you to talk and to help talk to your kids and to help your kids understand how to walk through fears and anxieties is, in an appropriate way, actually talk to them about your fears and anxieties. If you're a parent, tell them that you worry about things too. And talk to them about what you do with your fears and your anxieties. Um, you, you, can, you, can, um, you can model this, um, encouraging kids to face their fears. You know, there was a generation... Not that long ago, that used to say, don't do that, you might get hurt. And Angie and I made a really uh, clear decision when we had our kids that we were going to have a different line. And our line was, do that in a way that it will heal if it goes badly. You see the difference? What it says is, like, you need to be wise about what you're doing here, but we want you to have a crack at stuff. That's what we want you to do. Face your fears and have a go. Really important. And here's the thing. Some of you go, my kids are struggling with anxiety that's just too big. And I just go, well, just do it in small increments with small things. I mean, do you think Moses had any sleepless nights after God said he was going to provide manna every morning and that you couldn't store it up in your Tupperware containers? You reckon? Do you reckon any of the people that went out and filled up Tupperware containers when they shouldn't have and it bred worms and it stank, probably might have been diagnosed with some anxiety problems in our day. Probably. Maybe it was a whole bunch of people that struggled with the anxiety and they wouldn't get diagnosed with an anxiety problem, but they just struggle with the fear that I don't know whether this is going to be here tomorrow. I can see it here now, so I'm just going to control it and make sure I've got enough for tomorrow. Well... God's a bit annoying. Let's just say, you know, I find God annoying sometimes. It's not his problem. He's just a bit annoying sometimes because he actually said, you get one day where you can save enough manna for two days. The rest of the time, you need to go to bed and you need to trust me to bring the manna in the morning. Right? And this is actually the way that God deals with our anxieties is he calls for us all of the time to relationally trust him. We want to encourage our kids to take risks. 
uh, that it's okay to fail, and that we can trust God in the details, in the small details. Here's the last one this morning. Limit the flow of bad news. Um, there is a lot of bad news that gets around in our culture. Um, and uh, I don't want to sound like an old guy, but I probably will here. Um, but there was, you know there was a time where there wasn't a 24-7 news cycle. You'd buy a newspaper in the morning maybe, and there'd be a nightly news bulletin that went for 30 minutes at night. And you didn't have some terrorist attack that's happening in a plane somewhere over the Pacific getting piped into your phone that's sitting in your pocket. Now, the, the, the news just thrives on fear. Stories about fear. Sure, you get some other stuff in there, but it thrives on stories about fear. And, and, and you know, one of, the, one of the real dangers of the 24-7 news cycle for us when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to anxiety for our kids, is... Uh, the 24-7 news cycle threatens to pull you away from the time and place that you're in where God's grace is and take you to another place where it's not. Does that make sense? I think this is what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? He says, look at the lilies of the field. What's, where are they? Well, they're out on a mount. That's why it's a Sermon on a Mount. And he probably pointed to flowers and it was just over there, probably. He said, you know, like that flower over there, I'll dress that. And it's not, he's not talking about anxieties like who's getting into the bathroom first when you've got to get ready to go out. He's talking about food and clothing. You know, look at the sparrows there. What's he doing? I think what he's doing is he's pulling people back into the present. Because it's in your present time and place where God's grace and his mercy for you exists. And if you get pulled out of that into another place, it's like, that's not, there's no grace or mercy, in a sense, for you in that place. Stay in your place. Stay where you are. And so one of the things I think um, that you need to do is you just need to just guard how much exposure your kids have got to that stuff. And I actually would encourage you to guard the amount of exposure that you have to that. Because one of the things I think that can happen is we can just have this baseline anxiety because we're connected to all these really bad things that are happening which stir us up. Um, and so you could just put a lid on it and um, don't let too much of that in. All right, I'm done. I would have loved to uh, do some stuff on escapism because I think escapism is massive. Uh, but that one was going to take me probably a whole sermon and uh, we're already going over. Um, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal for everyone. It's a big deal for, for kids. Uh, the way that we try to escape the uncomfortable reality or the boring reality that we're in. But maybe, uh, maybe that's Mother's Day next year. All right. Uh, I wonder if you stand with me. Let's pray. Jesus, the... Um, seems to be no end to um, the kind of saving that we need, um, the kind of help that we need, the kind of redirection that we need, the truth that we need. Um, every day we wake up and we find some more places, perhaps, where uh, we need your help, we need your direction, we need you to save us again, rescue us again. And um, you are a saviour who uh, has no limits. And um, the psalmist says in Psalm 28, um, I trust in the Lord and the Lord helps me. What a wonderful thing that you would be a God like that who uh, we could trust in. God that's not evil, random that's logical, consistent, loving, slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, merciful, that we could talk to you, trust in you, and get help. We, um, I just pray for that for all the, the parents here today. I pray that you would uh, help the, the parents to, um, to be good parents. Help them to uh, be able to lock in on, 
hearts of their children. You give them ways to, uh, to get around their children and their hearts, not just their behaviour, and, uh, and, and shape those and turn their children to you. So their children will grow up one day and be able to say, um, as, as the parents, many of the parents here have said, I trust in the Lord and he helps me. Amen.